This is Christopher Batten, Detroit-born, Baltimore-based artist. You are listening to Studio Noise Podcast. Yes, you got your shirts ready to press. You got your paints, your charcoals, all that good stuff. That's the noise. That's the noise, the noise. You ready to go, baby? Yes, and that's the Studio Noise Podcast, sponsored by NBAF, National Black Arts, uh, doing their thing over there. They're giving, giving grants to artists. So go check them out at nbaf.org. And, you know, this is the Studio Noise Podcast, where we got all the art conversation that you're looking for, and everybody's always invited to the cookout. Because, you know, it's black people. That's what we do. We cook out. And black people do art. And black people make culture. And that's all we do. We talk about it right here on The Noise. It's your boy, Jake Barber, printmaker, third-year grad student, Jiggy Jazz is on assignment. So all summer long, it was just me for a little while. But now I got a co-host with me on this episode. <laughs> yeah, I had to bring in, had to bring in the special help to help with this one. We got Lauren Jackson Harris, Studio Noise fam, came on podcast to help me out. What's up, Lauren? What? What's up? I'm so thankful to be here. You know, I can't replace you know Jazzy J, but you know I'm gonna do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> no, we we did our thing. It was a great interview. People gonna listen to. I think they're really gonna enjoy it as we dig into. Like a lot of, I, I, we'll talk about it anyway. Yeah. But first, it first, as history. always, we like to drop a little question on it and get the conversation started. And that's what we got Lauren here for. Lauren got a question for everybody out there. I do there. have a question. I do have a question. Do I ask it now? Yeah, go Should for I? it. Okay. Well, my question is, what would an arts district in Atlanta look like? How do you envision it? What would an art district in Atlanta look like? Now, this is coming from Lauren. Everybody don't know Lauren. Lauren's a curator, arts administrator. She's working over at the AUC. Get a whole name because this is a long name. I don't want to mess it up. Oh, well, oh, sorry. The AUC Art History and Curatorial Studies Collective. I had to think about it. Yeah. So <laughs> took me a minute. <laughs> yeah, but she's doing good work over there. They got a, um, they got a grant from the Walton Foundation. And they're training up the next generation of curators and arts professionals uh, coming from Spelman. So, you know, it's going to be some wonderful, beautiful black women coming into the space doing their thing. So Lauren is very concerned about the, the art ecosystem and how it looks. So tell them why you asked this question and kind of what your thoughts on it ask the question because I look at other major cities. They all have a row, a street, an area that is solely dedicated to art, whether it's a gallery space, recreation center, uh, DIY space, artist collective, or murals everywhere, right? Um, we don't have a centralized area where people can come into the city and visit art. We're all in different, we're all siloed in different areas. Kirkwood, Avondale, downtown, midtown, south side, west side. And I would it would be nice if we had a, an area that showed our diversity, that showed our um, the dynamic art that artists that we have here in Atlanta. And it needs to be centralized so that when these international artists or these international people come to Atlanta, they'll see what we have to offer. And that's true because it is a lot of 
uh, we talk about this in an interview. There's a lot of grassroots kind of stuff going on where it's a lot of, uh, you know, this group is doing this, this group is doing that. We're kind of all like piecing it together. So you travel all around the city, you'll see a lot of stuff like going on, but it's not a, a, an organized thing that has like a push and a designation behind it and money behind it and marketing where this is the place you go to yeah. to make all that stuff happen. Right. And so Atlanta right. is also so decentralized where you do have, it really is. Uh, you have basically almost like a segregation that's happening with the white galleries are doing their yep. thing. You have the big institutions, the high motor Atlantic temporary, all in there doing their thing. And then you got Maya down in Castleberry Hill. He's yep. doing city ink up. Then you got pop-ups like, everywhere. Yeah, pop-ups <laughs> everywhere. Cause everybody's always looking for space and then, right. you know, living walls and like so much stuff going on. So I don't know what would an art district look like. Y'all, y'all let us know. So head on over to Studio Noise IG at Studio Noise Podcast. Uh, leave a comment. Check it out. Tag it. Tag any organization that you got that you know is doing good work and that we need to focus on. Uh, and let's talk about it. I'd, I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on this because, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, it's, it's money out there. All we need is there. investors. All we need are people. Because I, if hey, if you got money and you want me to have a space, hey, give me, <laughs> give me the money and I will. I will yeah, find a space. You can make a space. I will make it happen. Yeah, you can make a space. You got that kind of attitude, and you're good to oh, talk to. Just walk up and talk to Lauren about art. It's, it's hilarious. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's the best, yo. She's the best. What oh, else? You, what else you, you got going on, Lauren? Whew, that's a loaded question. Oh, Lord. Um, well, well, Black Women Visual Art is the organization that I started with Jerisia Mia Demar. That's right. Who Yay, who's another? Yes, check um, the archives. You get to hear our interview. Go with to her. the archives. Yeah. We in there. Um, but yes, she is my ace, Boom Coon. She's my partner in crime when it comes to this BWBA stuff. Um, we raised more money than we ever could imagine. And we are off to a great start for 2020 in terms of our programming. We have a lot of great things planned for what we want to announce. So we're taking a break to kind of structure ourselves for the month of July and August. In August, we're going to announce some really dope things. So I'm excited to work on that. So I'm busy, busy with oh, that. Um, that's what's um, aside from that, I'm also working with men as a curatorial juror. Um, I am still on the Public Art Advisory Council um, with Art in the Beltline. I'm curating a few shows here and there that are coming out later this year. Nice, um, nice. And other side projects. So I am... I'm busy and I love it and I'm taking on more. So if you got stuff for me to do, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> Lauren doesn't have enough stuff to do. Apparently that's what you say. Yeah. We might have to talk. Yeah, so well, you might the, goal, have to- the goal is to work full time for myself at one point. So, you know, at some point, so it's, it's the goal is to one, be an arts advocate mm-hmm. for artists like you. How can I help Jamal, you know, become an international superstar and how can I help also my city that I live in that I'm from become the international art hub that it should be that is those are my two goals yeah that's what's up and the fam the fam studio noise fam always working to improve your life yo. so definitely check out lauren lauren what's your ig my ig is l jackson harris so definitely check her out she's doing some good stuff check out black women in visual mm-hmm. arts too check out black women in visual art yep, yep. Well, it's, it's just fully written now at black women in visual art on instagram that's what's up man and definitely now you can sit back and you've been waiting so anxious we got a special interview with Mr. Kevin Sipp from live Woo-hoo. from the mayor's office of cultural affairs down here in the city of Atlanta. So he, we run Legend. through some history. Uh, we run through um, what 
the government kind of funding policies look like and kind of we give our thoughts on a lot of things about the structure of the art ecosystem in Atlanta. It's a great listen. So I hope y'all love it. Thank you, Lauren. Appreciate you coming in on the podcast and check this out right after the break. We got Kevin Sip live on the noise. Right, it's Studio Noise. It's your boy Jay Barber tuning in. Got my special co-host with me, Miss Lauren hey. Jackson Harris. How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And we got the esteemed pleasure of talking to uh, scholar, multimedia artist, curator, historian, all the things, creative thinker. He, he does all this, all the good stuff. Mr. Kevin Sepp. How you doing, man? All the things. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'll say I'm just a curious person. <laughs> <laughs> and if you and if you're creative and curious, you you find yourself in many different venues. So that's I true. Love it. That's true. Yes. And and you have been in a lot of venues over your long distinguished career, uh, and now you're working at the City of Atlanta Office of Cultural Affairs. Where you're the what is the cultural affairs and public art well, curator? I am the I am the project supervisor uh, for the city of Atlanta May, Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. I'm one of them, and what I have uh, uh, management over is the uh, Gallery 72, which is a municipal gallery at 72 Marietta Street on the uh, lobby area of the Watershed Management Building. And I also, as of uh, a year and a half, been managing. The mayor's gallery, which is uh, located at City Hall, we actually turned the mayor's uh, entry hallway into a rotating art gallery, and it's been very well received. So very excited about that. And I also help manage the city's art collection. The city has an art collection. We're constantly purchasing art when we can and growing that collection because we want to make sure we document and preserve the history of Atlanta's creative community. That's right. And tell, tell us a little bit more about that, how y'all go about acquiring works and where do you display them? Where do you keep them? Well, it's actually a, a group effort. Our, our executive director, Camille Love, she, she frequents many galleries, many museums and institutions. And we're always on the lookout for local, first of all, regional and upon occasion, national artists that we can bring into the collection. And so Everyone who works for the Office of Cultural Affairs, we all love what we do for the most part. I think we got a great team. And so we keep each other informed of uh, art exhibits that we go to, artists that we're looking at that we don't always get a chance to exhibit, like Karen Comerlo at Chastain Art Center, uh, myself at Gallery 72. And we basically keep a file. And every once in a while, we try to forward to uh, like a, a group think and say, hey, these are people we think needs to be in the city's collection. Unfortunately, the budget is not big enough to get everybody we want to get, but we try to make sure we get a a good example of uh, the creative uh, community here in Atlanta. And that's from every constituency. I mean, Atlanta is a very diverse uh, community, a very uh, creative community. We got people from all over the world living in Metro Atlanta, and they bring the best. And we try to bring that into the city's art collection. Nice. So how often do you think, um, I guess, purchasing works from the community happen? Um, 
how often like, do we? What, uh, like how often do you purchase? Is it is it seasonal? Is it per quarter? Is there a quota that you reach in terms of diversity to manage to make sure the collection is obviously reaching would say, large yeah, communities? I would say, Yes, yes, yeah. I would say seasonally in the sense mm-hmm. that we, we don't have a set schedule. It's that, that we basically will pull together a list that we've seen and basically propose that to the uh, executive offices and see if we can get a budget to purchase. We do have a budget that we have to lobby for every year and our, our, and our director does an incredible job of basically reporting the importance of the art community to the city of uh, to the city of Atlanta and its contribution and for the most part they they give us what we you know ask for in relation to all the other things that are going on cuz sewers have to be fixed and you know buildings have to be built but art is a vital part of that and they usually give us the uh some good funding to uh purchase and pursue artists um, talk to us a little bit about the history of the Office uh, of Cultural Affairs and kind well, of how you ended up getting involved with it. Well, the interesting thing about the uh, Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs, up until Maynard Jackson became mayor, there was no Office of Cultural Affairs. Uh, he created what was then called the Bureau of Cultural Affairs when he, when he became mayor of Atlanta. And he thought it was very important because he was surrounded by very progressive thinkers, uh, legislators, politicians, and many of them were art collectors. And he himself and his family and his wife, they were art collectors. So they saw the importance of art being a part of a city municipality. So they created a Bureau of Cultural Affairs, Maynard Jackson and his administration. And when you think of the people who were associated with that, Michael Lomax, you know, you had uh, Dr. Michael Lomax, you had Dr. Richard Long, you had all these people living in Atlanta in the uh, 70s. Uh, Dr. Hammonds, who's the Hammonds House, who's name is named after. These were all art collectors and contributors to the culture of Atlanta. And so Maynard created the Bureau of Cultural Affairs. And over the years, it grew and grew. And the Jazz Festival came out of that, the Atlanta mm. Jazz Festival. Right. Uh, you know, various municipal uh, uh Art offerings, the neighborhoods, art center, uh, all these things were initiatives of what I say was um, major inheritors of the Black Power movements of the 60s. Before that, the Harlem Renaissance. By the time the 70s came along, you had well-to-do African-Americans who were collecting art and who saw the importance of art being basically a bellwether of a community's intelligence a community's vision, a community's future aspirations. And they saw the artists as being very important to that because they were laying the foundation for what we're now calling Afrofuturism. What we're now seeing is the technology, you name it. It was the architects who were coming into Atlanta because of the contracts Black architects were getting. All that was overlapping into this very rich uh, movement that was, you know, Black Atlanta at the time. And did that also dovetail into kind of the airport and everything that was going on around there? Oh, all of those things. And even when I say Black Atlanta, I mean, you had some very rich cultural people from all backgrounds contributing to this movement. Because when you look at where Atlanta was in the 70s, we had a a progressive African-American mayor for the first time. We had the Bureau of Cultural Affairs being created. We had contractors across the board, black, white, Asian, and otherwise, suddenly being given equity and getting contracts. 
And we were trying to create a cosmopolitan city that reached out to the international community and the world. And art was a vital part of that. So obviously I wasn't born in the seventies and I wasn't alive in the seventies <laughs> in Atlanta, but being an Atlanta native um, and, you know, I was least here in the eighties. Um, where do you see, you know, with Maynard Jackson, cause I was, I was actually, you know, friends with his daughter and I was around and I was around when he was in um, leadership and yes. I saw the efforts that he did then. And where do you think it is now from 1996, you know, to now in terms of the efforts that the city is working to do in, in building, you know, the, Atlanta, the arts ecosystem in the city of Atlanta, um, from his leadership to the leadership with Keisha Glance Bottoms. How do you feel it's moved and where do you see it? Where do you see, where do you think it's going? I think it has grown uh, considerably. I mean, it comes and goes. And when I say considerably, you have cycles and all those cycles depends on the mayor in power and what ha what is happening at the time uh, with those mayors in power. So. I think it has incrementally grown. I think we have found a way to deal with issues that have been under the surface and overtly out there. And you have to be honest about the two Atlantas that exist. You have the progressive Black Atlanta that came around the time Maynard came into office. You have old Atlanta and you have the clash between the two, old white Atlanta and new black Atlanta. And then you have what I call the ambassadors between the two, which is where the art community grew the most. I mean, when you look at organizations like the Metropolitan Arts Fund, when you look at the Bureau of Cultural Affairs, when you look at the Fulton County Arts Council, you have people who are basically tasked with basically pleasing a lot of different tax-based constituencies. It's not just Black Atlanta. It's not just White Atlanta. We're talking about Latino Atlanta, Asian Atlanta. We're talking about an international community. And I think they've done a good job of navigating. It can always be better, in my opinion, because as artists, we always think more can be done for us. Uh, but I always understood that you have to balance out the needs of the uh, creative community with the needs of what I call the rest of the community, which is those who need roads fixed and sewers fixed and 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 police uh, issues dealt with where we are now. Um, it's a balancing act. I always think it can be better, but I think a lot of times you have to, um, I've been lucky enough to have, have been on both sides of the fence. I was a uh, working artist for many years um, before I joined the Hammonds House Museum and I was there for 15 years working for a nonprofit. Now I'm working for the city of Atlanta. And I see as an artist what I often think I need, but I also see as an administrator now what I think the city also needs. And a lot of times the artists uh, don't understand all the issues that an art administrator has to balance in order to uh, make sure money is secured for the cultural community, but also understanding that there are other needs. Like we're in this political moment now with what I call a righteous uprising when you look at what's going on around police brutality. When you look at what's going around the COVID issue, uh, but as a creative uh, community and as a cultural administrator, we've also done initiatives where we've tried to actually create a pandemic project where artists respond to what's going on with COVID-19. We've also purchased uh, works of art during this time so that we can support artists uh, during this time of COVID because artists are workers. And they need money just like other workers need money. So we've tried to purchase artwork at that time. 
So I think we all are always trying to find ways to grow the creative community. I think it's done well over the years. I think we've had missteps like any municip municipality will have. But overall, I think we've done a fairly good job. Um, I think we need to make sure equity is always at the uh, center of that. Uh, when I do an exhibit, all the exhibitions I've done at Gallery 72, at the front of my mind is equity. You know, how how am I serving the all the uh, constituencies in the city of Atlanta, all the different neighborhoods, all the different uh, ethnic, ethnicities? And I have to be very clear to balance all those issues as well. And, you know, it's it's at the front of our thoughts, uh, as we call a one Atlanta vision, as um, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has put it. You know, we have to find a way to support everyone equitably because the tax dollars come from everyone. I'm going to jump um, back a little bit to when you were talking about your work at the Hammonds house and yeah. kind of give us a perspective because you were there in from what, 93 on? Oh, no, from 95 up until 2012. And the first year I was actually there as an artist's re artist in residence. Um, oh, give they you had the, artists in residence? Like you well, can... let me, yeah, let me give you the, the beautiful, <laughs> quick version of that story. History. Uh, when I graduated from the Atlanta College of Art in 1991, and I always proudly say with Carol Walker and Radcliffe Bailey and, and oh, most man. people don't know, DJ Jelly was, DJ Jelly Crunk, he was there. We had a really good crew. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah, DJ that's, Jelly that's nice was class. at the Atlanta College of Art. I know. Now we I want to hang out with y'all. We were all <laughs> friends. So so I graduated in 91, but I was also working as a uh, manager of a restaurant. And I did that for years. And everybody kept saying, man, you need to leave that. You're not having time to make enough art. You know, you're, you you got all these creative ideas. You're a poet. You need it. So I, I finally let them talk me into applying for a residency program at the Hammonds House. And it was through the Seagram's Gen Perspective in African-American Arts. Uh, where Seagram's Gym was actually giving money to African-American museums to basically create an artist-in-residence program and purchase a major work of art for a ma from a major African-American in each city that they did it. And I applied for it, not really thinking I would get it. And so when Radcliffe told me, uh, Radcliffe Bailey told me, hey, Kevin, you need to show up at the Hammonds House for this event, I had no, no clue what it was about. So I show up. Not, I didn't put on a, 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 sh a, a shirt and tie. I came in there with my regular clothes, <laughs> and suddenly I was announced as the first artist in residence for this program at the Habits House. And, and I did that for roughly a uh, nine months. Um, and at the end of the nine months, I had to make a decision whether I was going to stay in the art world or go back to being a restaurant manager, which I was still doing. And they finally talked me into just letting the restaurant management go and uh, the residency was over so Ed Spriggs uh, the director of the Hammonds house at the time hired me as a facilities manager and tour guide but he also knew I was a bit of a uh, like like historian of art and culture so he got a lot out of me and I thoroughly enjoyed the uh, education I got from him in the Hammonds house because suddenly I'm in a African-American Art Museum, where people like Betty Sarr visiting Ed Spriggs, uh, you name it, just the who's who of African-American art were coming through that gallery and were being exhibited at that gallery because it was founded to showcase African-American artists who weren't being brought here by the High Museum, who weren't being brought here. This 
the many of the black arts movement artists of the 60s, uh, artists that were little known but had made great contributions to art. And so it also began to allow me to curate exhibitions as well. While I was an artist in residence there, I curated an exhibition that featured uh, several artists who went on the prominence uh, after that. Um, um, once my residence residency was over, we did three more residencies. The resident artist that came in after me was Charles Nelson. Mm-hmm. After Charles Nelson, Daniel Hoover came in. And the final artist in residence was the legendary uh, artist, John T. Riddle. And I'm working there. We're having conversations. So the Hammond's house almost became like a salon where people would come and visit and we would debate art, aesthetics. We would host programming there. It was just, like say, a, a very radical and beautiful time for me. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, that does sound amazing. We need that now, today. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you... <laughs> Go ahead. What do you think that looks like today? Like, you know, if, if, do you think we have spaces in Atlanta that provide that those kind of conversations, those interactions, those the, the sense of community amongst the Black arts community? Do you do you feel like we have that right now? If not, I think we, we have it. One. We just don't have it in the institutions in the manner in which we had it. in. I think Leitris Elsie at the Hammonds House is doing an incredible mm-hmm. job of bringing that. Type oh, yeah, of big shout out back. So she is definitely bringing that energy back. Yes. But what yes. what I think came out of that though is younger artists who came in after that started doing their own thing. So they didn't necessarily mm-hmm. look for institutions to host those things for them. Uh, you have like art beats and lyrics after that. You have you have what Clint Fluker and, and his wife are doing with the lift salon. You have what um, uh, th- th- what's coming out of the tattoo shops with our favorite, uh, you know, you have all of those things now where people are doing those things themselves. Because if you do it yourself, you don't have to worry about negotiating grants and 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 money from other people. Right. So it's easier to do it on your own, but it's always great to also have an institution that's hosting and giving space to that. Because I will tell and you this. Money. Yes. When but but just even coming to the Hammond's house when I was working there and and hanging out, I had to make very clear to a lot of people that I was still on the job <laughs> and that I couldn't have these long debates in the middle of the day when I'm trying to uh, fix things and, and hang art. But but out of that, like say people understood that it was a welcoming place where we could actually come and gather. And that was a great thing. And even if I wasn't present on the conversations. At one point, we had a sofa in the middle of the second gallery at the Hammond's house, and people would come and hang out there and sit on the sofa, and people are coming in to look at art, and they're right in the midst of these two artists debating the history of Black art and aesthetics. It was, And then sometimes those visitors would join in on the conversation and grow from that, but you would also grow from that interaction with the community. And so that was very, very, uh, very transformational time for me. So coming in in, during your time in the Hammonds house, how did you see the Hammonds house itself change in the direction that that it was going? Well, the biggest issue I I think was going on with the Hammonds house is the issue that goes on with a lot of uh, uh, black art institutions. How much uh, money can you raise to keep your doors open? Right. Uh, I think Ed did a phenomenal job. I mean, the Hammonds house uh, opened its doors in 1988. And that was the same year that the National Black Arts Festival was uh, created. And so you had these two major events in, the, in Atlanta, which I think is very important. 
because what a lot of people don't know is that those events tapped into legacies that had been building for over a hundred years. And what I mean by that, how many of how many people are are knowledgeable of the Negro building that was built during the 1895 Cotton Expo in Atlanta? And there's a, a wonderful uh, uh, sister in Atlanta named Annabella Jean Laurent who wrote about this. The Negro building was a building that was built in 1895 when Atlanta wanted to showcase itself as an international city. And what they basically said was, we're going to do a cotton expo to showcase our industry and innovation as the, as the leading city of the New South. So Booker T. Washington and other black leaders uh, petitioned the president of the United States and said, don't give them money for this unless they also give us an opportunity to showcase black cultural creativity. And so a deal was made that a building would be allowed to be built at Piedmont Park called the Negro Building, where all the top black artists, innovators, and HBCUs could bring an exhibition to that space and show where black culture was at that time. That was before the Harlem Renaissance, and it was right here in Atlanta. And out of that building, uh, Turner's banjo lesson was shown. Uh, major black artists, uh, uh, Harriet, uh, um, oh, the, the major quilt maker, Harriet Powers, her quilts were shown in that space. And artisans from all over the world came to that building. So that's that's a market that I want to start with. From that, moving forward to the National Black Arts Festival. When the National Black Arts Festival came around in 88, it was living off the fumes of the um, um the arts festivals that took place internationally in Dakar 66 was the first world black arts festival. Fest Act 77 was the second world black arts festival. And every so, so many years, 10 to 12 years, there was supposed to be another black arts festival around the world. There was not one created in 88, but the national black arts festival became a de facto extension of that. The Hammond's House became an, a, 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 an extension of that energy where people said, okay, we have art collections, we have capital, we can turn this old house that this black doctor who had a major art collection had and turn it into a major institution, and it was done so. Then I'm coming into school, I'm coming here in Atlanta in 87 to go to the Atlanta College of Art. The Hammonds House opens up in 88. One of my colleagues, Paul Evans, becomes an intern at the Hammonds House. Me and Radcliffe and Paul begin to hang out at the Hammonds House. Various members of it, the Atlanta College of Art begin to see that as an institution that kind of counters the, uh, what I call the uh, European Eurocentric art history that we're getting at the Atlanta College of Art. And we suddenly see that there's this whole wide world of African diaspora creativity. And it opens us up to the whole world. Uh, it opens us up to everything we have been kind of forcing the school to kind of teach us. It certainly was our, our educational fountain. So the Hammond's house was very important. And that's right over around the corner from the AUC. Uh, exactly. And so how, and how connected, yeah. How connected were you to at the time, even developing, were you connected to uh, Clark Atlanta and then, the curation that um, Tina Duncan was doing over there and building it up. How how connected were y'all? 
Well, lucky for me, one of my best friends at the Atlanta College of Art was a gentleman by the name of George Dumas. He was a printmaker. He actually convinced me to switch over from being a graphic designer to a printmaker when I was in art school. And the first workshop he took me to off campus from the Atlanta College of Art was to a workshop at the Clark Atlanta University uh, Art Center in the basement. So, yeah. And okay, I'm back. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. Yeah. So, so you said you were in the so basement went, in Clark Atlanta. Yeah, I was in the basement partly, you know, teleworking. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the basement. Um, I there was a workshop being created by master printmaker, I whose name is slipping me now, but Tina Dunkley was hosting this printmaking workshop in the basement of the Clark Atlanta gallery. And that was she was one of I would say one of the top first four people I met in the Atlanta arts administration who uh, were running things here in Atlanta. And that's a friendship that has lasted to this day. What I saw was a woman in Tina Dunkley who was almost single-handedly trying to preserve and save this major HBCU art collection. And it was eye-opening to me when I got to see the collection that they had in their hands at Clark Atlanta University. To this day, I am almost ashamed of the of the of the the battles that Tina Dunkley had to fight with her own administration to preserve the legacy of the Clark Atlanta art uh, collection, it is one of the preeminent art collections in our history. And you had administrators who were ambivalent to the value of it, and Tina had to fight tooth and nail to showcase the value of this important art collection. I had people coming to the Hammonds house who would visit from Russia to go and look at the Clark Atlanta art collection. People were visiting from France. People were visiting from international cities around the world because of that collection. And yet you had administrators at the school who did not value it as much as the international community valued it. So that got me on the path of understanding how important legacies were as well. And and it's and to this day I hold that because it not only happens with institutions, it happens with families. And so for me, when a person has an art collection and they pass away, what happens to that art collection? That's very important to me. How are the children prepared to hold on to that legacy? And if they don't care about that legacy, at least know who to give it to who does care about right, that legacy. Yeah. So that working at the Hammonds house gave me all that as well because I we were in a house that was based on the collection of a prominent African-American doctor. And he left the collection behind that was second to none that could walk you through the entire history of black culture, not only artistically, but socially and politically. Our art does all those things. It, it It's like I say, it's like a bellwether of who we are. It's, a, it's an expression of our emotions, our mythologies, our realities. And it's it's that other side of who we are that is just as important as the political history, just as important as the social history. So, so all those things are are, are basically the HBCU, the AU Center, Spelman College, and its art collection, and and the and the exhibitions that it hosts. All these things are very very important. Morris Brown and the yeah. exhibitions that it hosted before it passed away. I exhibited there myself as an artist. I think it's just tragic in a way that we are not even in a stronger position when it comes to those institutions. I mean, they are doing 
okay, but I think every African-American in the country should be contributing to the support of those institutions and their artistic contributions and their legacies and their art collections because we all have ownership of those in, in some way. And we all need to make sure that they're preserved just like the arts at the High Museum. Right. I do want to speak to how, you know, I have a few points to talk about when it, when it comes to legacy. So yes. you spoke about the AUC, Jamal brought up, brought up you know, the AUC and, and you worked you know, with Clark, with Tina Dunkley. Um, right now I'm working at the AUC Art Collective. Art, actually the full name is a mouthful. Mm-hmm. It's the <laughs> AUC ahead. Art History and Curatorial Studies Collective. Um, we received a little over a $5 million grant from the Walton Foundation to do there this program, to have a major and minor in art history and then a minor in curatorial studies. Right now we have about 24 students within Morehouse, Clark, and Spelman um, that we're hoping to actually grow this program and steward more students into the arts ecosystem, into the art world, right? Our Mm -hmm. job is to, you know, I guess coming here, going into Spelman, going to ACU, because I went to Howard University, but um, being from Atlanta. (laughs) Another another great collection there. Another great collection. Oh, their collection is beautiful. But other than, you know, just being- We don't need more Howard Love on this podcast. I guess more Howard Love. Yay. (laughs) But being at the AUC, I am now studying almost um, the history of the arts at the AUC as 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 a whole. And what artists like Hale Woodruff um, oh and, and yeah. contributed to the the the, the whole landscape, um, even starting back as as far as W. E. B. Du Bois bringing it to the AUC, and now you talk about what it's like. Even with this program, we're teaching these students how far the history of the arts in the Black arts community go back. And they're, I mean, I'm I'm awestruck. Um, and now we're doing a research project mapping that history. And when you speak about legacy in terms of collection and influence where as an arts administrator, I guess you can, I'm looking at it mm-hmm. from this side because I'm an arts administrator, not an artist. Um, I guess infiltrating and transforming the art industry is one thing that we need to do um, in terms of being black and have, making sure our voices are heard on that landscape. Yes. Where do you, what do you, what do you think about, I guess this moment that they say that we're having in terms of the art world, black artists being, a trend, which I think is, you know, mm. I, I hate say, I hate using that word, but that's how people are using it. But I don't think it's a trend. It's just we're getting late recognition to me. Um, and we're, yes. we're almost being tokenized in some way, but this is late recognition. And with the legacy that we need to leave as arts administrators or artists, how do you feel that Atlanta plays a role um, in, in, that, in, that, in that effort? You talked about, you know, the history of the Black arts community then and what it is now, I mean, there's a lot of grassroots efforts happening right now in the city of Atlanta. As a a historian, what do do you feel um, about the legacy that we're leaving right now? I feel the the best thing that we can do right now is understand the best of what happened before. (laughs) And I love what you're doing now because remembering all the things that we've done that were blueprints for what we can be doing now. Because a lot of times when we think about progress, A lot of people think it's always about looking forward. Progress Mm -hmm. is always about understanding the best practices from the past that you can move forward and tying that with the innovative practices that are coming along now. So I think that's the best thing we can do. So like you said, educating them about the the progressives that are in our past, Hale Woodruff and what he did with the uh, art annual that came to uh, Mm -hmm. Clark Atlanta every year and how incredibly important that was. 
Why aren't yeah. we still doing that? You know, bringing artists from all over the country to contribute to a jury exhibition that is hosted here in Atlanta. It never right. should have ended. It never should have ended. Um, uh, the Black Arts Movement of the 60s, when you look at people like Amiri Baraka and what they laid the foundation for when it came to reorienting our love for Black self, this, that was an extension of the Harlem Renaissance. That was an extension of our freedom right after slavery. We have never stop, stopped fighting for our human recognition. And art has always been a part of that. So we have to first lay the foundation for the history that, no, this is nothing new uh, at this moment. Because like I say, I think it is tokenism. Uh, we had these moments before and then they faded. And then Jeez. only slightly, because there are some institutions that held on. When you look at groups like the National Conference of Artists that was founded here, but we don't even have a chapter here in Atlanta anymore. You know, where artists got together from all over the country and some places all over the world to talk about Black aesthetics. They hosted conventions here. They hosted conventions in Nigeria. They hosted conventions in Dakar. They hosted event conventions in Detroit, New York, and that. But it got to the point where I think people drifted away from those type of collective advocacy groups. And and what ended up happening is we have a lot of smaller advocacy groups that are not working as a collective powerhouse hold to keep change moving forward. This is Jeremiah Ojo, founder of Ile Kunwa, and you're listening to Studio Noise. I think we're at a, another moment, because I'll be honest, I appreciate the youth reminding us what real civil rights is about. Because mm. we've had more happen in the last month than we've had happen in 20 years. Wow. So we have to acknowledge that. But yeah. it, it's a shame that it took so many blood martyrs to get us to this point again when we should have always remained at this point. We got a little complacent along the way. And I, myself included, will say that I got a little complacent along the way. But we are at a moment where people are honestly looking again at how dehumanizing America has been to Black people. And we must leverage this moment to make sure people contribute uh, not always financially, but socially and politically to making America live up to the ideals that it was founded on. Because let's be clear, this country was founded by hypocrites. <laughs> they were not only hypocrites, they were science fiction authors. Because they were telling us <laughs> we were three fifths. <laughs> you know, you know yeah. so what I talk about, you know, they, they created the mythology of black non-humanity, which is science fiction. They were liars and hypocrites. And because of their lies, this country being founded by hypocrites who said that all are created equal except those. It has been the stain that has kept America in a certain cycle of dehumanization of people of color, dehumanization and oppression of all these folks along the way, because they accumulated wealth and power by dehumanizing us. And then they created industries that produce images that dehumanized us. And then we have been countering that through our art all along the way. 
And we continue to try to counter that all along the way. So we're at a moment now where the reckoning that should have been is now there. We can't squander this reckoning moment. We have to collectively respond to this reckoning moment and we have to hold feet to the fire. And that's not just about black people. It's about brown people. It's about as well. It's about what Latinos are going through, what Muslims are going through. This this fallback mechanism that the white power structure has had over the years to dehumanize others to hold on to power. We have to collectively destroy. And let's be very clear. We have many white allies who are tired of it as well. So we are at a moment where we move from here is going to require some really delicate balancing to go along with the really forceful protest in the streets because we're going to have to negotiate people relinquishing power, relinquishing capital as well. And it's going to be very, very important to do that. I think one of the interesting parts from my understanding of the Atlanta annuals was that when Hale Woodruff left the university, I think that's when it lost a lot of the energy and focus because it didn't have like this powerful figurehead in charge that was giving it all the energy and making it happen. So mm-hmm. in terms of that, do you see other institutions or new grassroots institutions or organizations or people around the city that are bringing that energy in and kind of can that we need to follow and, and shift our support towards? That's a hard one for me. I would say yes and no. I, and I don't think you always need to look to the arts community for that. Um, earlier, you brought up um, like all these initiatives that are going along and I have to bring up the initiative that my wife is creating around the Digging the Boys the project that I uh, reached out to you about. Um, when my wife created that project, it was about bringing recognition to this major human being, W.E.B. Du Bois. When we talk about W.E.B. Du Bois in Atlanta, we don't talk about him very often. We don't talk about him very often. So bringing attention to people like him through projects like the Digging Du Bois project that my wife has created is a way to basically bring attention to people who try to articulate and plan for transformation. Uh, how many people utilize his legacy to do that? Um, is and, and it's very important that we, that we hold on to the master thinkers who have created pathways for us to move forward in transformation. I think we limit ourselves sometimes with the civil rights leaders we quote. I think we limit ourselves with the people we put on TV uh, to talk about our, our issues. I think we need to be as broad a coalition as possible, and we need to be in clear communication with each other over generations, over race, over community engagement, over class issues, over wealth issues. We need to be in clear communication at all times. I think it's going to be a group coalition that brings us forward into this new moment. So. So I feel that there is, I guess, a renaissance in Atlanta, even before a lot of the COVID situation and, you know, the civil unrest. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have been saying Atlanta's going through renaissance. Atlanta's going through renaissance. (laughs) And at the end of the day, there is a lot of individuals and organizations coming that are sprouting in the city of Atlanta that are supporting black artists. Um, how do you feel, I guess, the OCA, the Office of Cultural Affairs, is seeing this? Do, are they seeing this? And if so, how are they supporting 
I guess, what's going on in our own backyards? Well, I can tell you this. From my own personal experience as a member of the Office of Cultural Affairs, I have hosted exhibitions uh, from the Creative Project. Um, I have hosted exhibitions from uh, various arts coalitions here in town, and I'm constantly seeking proposals to showcase those coalitions. Uh, I think that's one way we support. We give them an, a platform. We give them grant money uh, so that they can do their work and projects. Uh, the Office of Cultural Affairs, we have a, a, a contract for art services grant that we give out uh, to creative artists and creative organizations uh, every year. And it's a really fierce competition, but we that that program was designed to give money to people with creative, innovative ideas who are based in the city of Atlanta. Um, and, and believe me, there are so many groups popping up individually that I think competition is fierce, um, but I think it's one of the ways the city uh, supports them is by granting them funding to do what they do. Uh, the funding does not always get to everyone. That's always an issue. We try to make sure our judging panels are equitable so that uh, we have a broad spectrum of people looking at the proposals that come in so that we can have fair judgment on them. Um, that's one of the ways we as a city do it. Um, but like I say, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying the fact that we have all these independent art groups coming up. But the, those independent art groups also must find ways to work collectively as a whole and just not in times of protest, but in times of prosper. When you talk about um, that government funding piece, how how good of a job would you say that the OCA is doing on getting the information out to artists? Because I think a lot of a lot of us will like see the award, but never realized that it was uh, something that we could apply for that we did, you know, lack of information, didn't just didn't know about it. Like, so where are the places, one, one, where, how good of a job do you think they're doing? And two, where are the places that people need to go to look and check these things out? Okay, now that's a two-way street because I, I hear you on that one. Uh, when we publicize the contract for art services, we have, uh, we send it out to the general uh Arts media like uh, ArtsATL, Burnaway.org, uh, various print media. We also have a newsletter that I would recommend every creative in the city of Atlanta join because our newsletter gives that information out as well every month. Um, but a lot of times, well, of course, Facebook, uh, through our Office of Cultural Affairs Facebook page, we put it out. But a lot of times I think artists, need to do as much of the work as we do to put it out there. Um, there needs to be, a, a, I think, a better uh, media sharing amongst artists because oftentimes I have heard, well, we didn't hear about that uh, program. And I was like, well, we put it out in every media. It's You can find out what's going on with Jay-Z. You can find out what's going on <laughs> with happening on Twitter. You can find out, you can keep up with all that, but something as important as hey, this is a grant to give you money if you come up with a great idea and right. the judges Somehow that slips through the cracks. So I think we can always do a better job, but I think we're doing pretty good and artists have to start making sure they are in uh, linked up to the newsletters and Facebook pages for the government entities that want to give them money so that they can always be alerted when those issues come out. So my my 
public service announcement today is get on the Office of Coastal get on the Affairs newsletter. newsletter. Join the newsletter because that's how we get information out to you. Because we're well, is it the same for the gallery too, for them to submit to for maybe a curator wants to submit a show or an artist wants to submit their work to you? How do they do that? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm constantly taking in uh, curatorial proposals. I don't have a seasonal time for that. I do it constantly. Okay. Um, I tell people, send it directly to me at ksip at atlantaga.gov. I'm constantly looking for innovative exhibitions and I'm constantly looking to host curators with innovative exhibitions. Uh, since being um, at Gallery 72 for the past five years, uh, uh, I've had shows on human rights trafficking. I've had shows on um, Black Lives Matter uh, by artist uh, Richard Decree, incredible photographer. I've always tried to mix up my own personal curatorial taste with outside curatorial vision. And I'm always taking proposals looking for new artists to showcase. So. Yeah, just send them in, and I'm constantly reviewing them with uh, the Office of Cultural Affairs staff. One thing that we, um, <clears throat> as creators and kind of curators, as we have our conversations, we talk about is the attitudes of support and buying inside the city of Atlanta and just in general. And so how do you see the Office of Cultural Affairs and probably can give us some tips on what other things we can do? to kind of buffer this this support and kind of push and let people know the greatness that can come out of their support of the arts? Well, this is one thing I can tell you. Um, when I, when we create, when Camille approached me uh, about creating the mayor's gallery, um, Camille Russell Love, the di executive director of the mayor's office of cultural affairs. She had this vision that if we put, beautiful artwork up in the, the main hallway where people come to visit the mayor, that the constituency of the city would respond. And let me tell you, it's been a total success. Not only has the constituency responded, but the workers who work for the city of Atlanta have responded. Artists have been selling artwork out of that space because you'd be amazed at how many people who work for the city of Atlanta are art collectors and love art and love the vision that the Office of Cultural Affairs bring to the city. So it's almost been a win-win for me running that uh, particular space because many people from the public say how much they support what we're doing when they see the art there. And they want to make sure that the uh, the mayor's office supports the arts. And they do. The mayor is an art lover. You know, she collects art. And even she has suggested artists for me to exhibit. And it's a wonderful thing when you have this, everybody just so, I say, enamored and concerned and in love with the arts, that they're all willing to contribute their voices to making sure that the artists are exhibited and shown. Um, what the city uh, constituency can do is just continue to advocate for the importance of art in our in our city. Because when you look at major cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, L.A., you name any major city. Art is a vital part of their their branding. And and Atlanta has its brand, and we know that. We, we have a brand not only through visual arts, but through music, uh, not just hip-hop, but across the board. We have a branding that has contributed to a transformational world culture, and we're vital players in that. So 
I say if the city constituencies want to see that survive, they have to continue to advocate uh, to the uh, city how important art is to them. Okay, you talk about collectors and um, being obviously an important part of the art, the art ecosystem as a whole. You spoke about New York, there's major cities like Chicago, LA, where their art market is obviously at a higher rate than the Atlanta area. How do you feel that we, what do you feel like we need to do? What do you feel like we need to do in order to get collectors to continue to be consumers of art in the city of Atlanta? Because I know there's a lot of, you know, I used to work at, Gal I used to work at Zuccott Gallery and it sometimes it's like pulling teeth for black, for the black community to purchase art, original works of art. And if you say something is $300, they're like, that's too much. And I'm like, well, it's an original piece of art. You, what do you want me to do? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna discount Jamal Barber's piece just because you look at me crazy when I tell you the price. You better you not. You know, like, <laughs> 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 I'm, gonna get, I'm gonna get that artist value, right? And so, you know, sometimes, you know, one of, one of the things that I, that, that I felt like was successful at Ducat was the art tasting because we would have new voices come in there, new collectors come in there and we would cultivate people um, to become a collector by educating them on what it means to collect art. Um, but Atlanta is a stubborn city to me when it, when it comes to selling art. Have you seen that same instance? Or if, if not, where are those oh, people? You know, <laughs> I, I have seen that. And because even the artwork that has sold out of the mayor's gallery, mm -hmm. uh, there were people who say, well, is it really that much? Can I negotiate a lower price? And I'm right. like, that's, always do that. I, I don't even get involved in that because I think it's between you and the artist because technically the city is not selling the art for the artist. We're just mm -hmm. getting the collector in contact with them. But that is an issue. So it comes down to this. What do people, what have people been taught to value? What have people been taught to value? As, and what have African-Americans been taught to value? Uh, I'm going to give you a prime example. Uh, in the late 80s, um, uh, a gallery here in town brought Basquiat for an exhibition. Um, so many collectors saw this work. Some didn't think he could paint. Some, <laughs> Some liked it, but they didn't believe it was worth the amount it was. So fast forward to now. Had any of those African-American collectors bought one of those Basquiat paintings for $12,000? Wow. $15,000. Where would it be now? In 1988, when he yeah. exhibited here in Atlanta, they would be sitting on a multi-million dollar piece now. Right, right. But in order for them to purchase that work, they would have had to understand the history of uh, symbolic references he was making in his work. Mm -hmm. The history of abstract and modernism in his work, how he was counter-revolutionizing against modernist art in his work. There would right. have been had to have been an education that gave them an opportunity to say, this is important for me to buy. And a lot of times that doesn't happen when it comes to black art in Atlanta. Right. People don't understand the fullness of the history people like what they like and see that's the thing about art you can't argue with people liking what they like but we have to find a better way of educating them what it is that they need to be looking at and 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 if it's not something they like give them a little education about about why this is important you got, you got to give them almost a trail 
leading up to that moment of purchase. And a lot of times that just does not happen. So somebody might see spending money on a car that's going to depreciate in value the minute you drive off the lot rather than buying an art that's going to appreciate in value over time. Yeah, that's an example I use often. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, even even getting memberships in the black institutions. I I used to trick people into getting memberships at the Hammers house. I wouldn't say trick. I would say shame them. <laughs> no, that's a trick. Say tr- <laughs> that's a trick. <laughs> what, I, what I would do is people say, well, how much is a membership at the museum? I'd say, oh, it could be anywhere between 15 and $25 if you wanted to be a blah, blah. They say, oh, that's a lot of money. I say, no, that's two drinks on a Saturday night. Right. <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't have a problem spending $100 in one night to buy drinks at a bar, but you don't want to spend 15 to $50 to support an institution that's going to basically reflect the best of who you are for the future. But shame helps and, with perspective because I use that. I use yeah. that on a woman one time. She had a Louis Vuitton like tote bag on her arm and she was negotiating me a piece of art. I was like, that bag that you have on your arm, I can't afford. But that $225, that $2,000 bag, is the same price as that artwork. But guess which one's gonna fail? Fail you at some point. That leather's gonna exactly. start breaking down. You're gonna get you're gonna spill something in it, you're gonna get markers in it, but that art on your wallet will appreciate. But one of the questions that comes out of that when you talk about appreciation is value, valuing art. People black the black community wanna say, like you spoke about a Basquiat, right? Some people they wanna glorify it now. Now, you know, Jay-Z said it in a song. And now everybody exactly. wants, well, if it's not a Basquiat, I don't want it. What about those black artists that need the purchase in order to attain that level of of stardom, a mainstream, a mainstream art industry fame? Like we have to one, I think we also have to understand what it, what we're looking at and what we like, but we also have to know that if we don't, I guess, consume that art, buy that art, purchase that, if we don't collect Jamal Barber, the world's not gonna know who he is. We have to continue to buy his work in order for his work to appreciate and for his work to be more widespread across this, across the world. So I think that I, I, it's also in the, it's also intention, right? Oh, so very much it, so. how do you, how do you have these conversations with people when um, it's, you have to just be completely intentional. Like some people used to say, Oh, I didn't know Zucat was here. I'm like, well, Zucat's been here. <laughs> That's not my fault. You know, when you talk about gallery 72, gallery 72 has been there. Are you researching the gallery spaces in Atlanta? If you don't know it's there, what are you doing? Are you really being intentional? Um, so as an arts administrator, I mean, I'd make sure I speak about what's going on in Atlanta. Um, but it, when you also enter spaces that are non-Black, how do you have those conversations? Have you had to have those conversations in non-Black areas when, you know, because I know black, white people do purchase Black art. Nothing wrong with that. But how do you have those? Con- is it the same kind of conversation? Is it the same convincing that you have to do when you're trying to sell or speak to someone about black art who is non-black? I've had better chance selling uh, black art non-blacks than many blacks at any time. So it's a very complicated issue because it comes back to uh, educational knowledge about art and art history. And I think it's one of those things where I tell people we might need like a yearly convention where people who have collected a work of art, we bring them in with appraisers and they say, oh, this piece that you bought for such and such two years ago, guess how much it's worth now? It's almost it's a show and tell kind of thing with uh, black art. But over the years, black art from major black artists have been devalued. Um, uh, we have their Beardens that were devalued by hundreds of thousands of dollars because they just weren't on the market in a certain way or or they were hidden away in people's closets and they weren't on the market to be valued in the value they deserve. 
the devaluation of black art is almost equivalent to the devaluation of black bodies. Mm. And we have to be clear about that. If you don't respect the humanity of the person creating the work, you won't respect the product that they create. And what has changed now wonderfully is that when you have a self-created economy, I'll say self-created, semi-self-created economy, like let's look at hip hop, for instance. Suddenly you have people like Swizz Beats collecting art with the capital that they have created uh, from their, their hard work. And they're bringing advocacy to the value of black art now. And they don't have to feel beholden to answer to a dominant power structure that told them there was no value. They are now creating that new value. So Jay-Z and Swizz Beats and all of them, they have their place in this and they have a stake in it. And many of them are doing a great job in putting it out. Many of them are being led sometimes by others, but many of them have a heartfelt appreciation because a lot of them grew up as visual artists undercover. And a lot of us don't know these things. So it's a combination of, 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 of ideologies that come to how the black art is being valued. But we always, like I say, have to look back to the innovators who were trying to hold the torch to remind us of it. Um, I would recommend if anybody can find it, if you can find Howard Dina Pendel's The Heart of the Matter, this little book that was written about her life and art. But she also integrated into that book an analysis of racism in the art world and an analysis of the valuation of black creativity in the art world. So she's a master artist, but she was also a master analyst when it came to looking at what was going on. And she was a, 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 an African-American administrator in a predominant white institution looking at how many white artists were shown versus how many people of color were shown, how much was their work valued versus how much was the person of color's work valued, how many opportunities were given versus the opportunities, you know, were not given. So, all these things come to a head when it comes to the valuation of uh, black art. Uh, it's, a, it's a constant battle, but we have to first value ourselves before we can uh, think about how other people are valuing us. And if we don't value ourselves to the highest, why should we expect others to? I, I think See, uh, part, I of, part of, part of um, what both of y'all are hitting at is, and and it comes from the same place, this idea of, what you were saying before about the final fathers being hypocrites, that ideal of black people being less than human uh, is influencing in all the decisions that we're talking about. Like it's a, it's a complete legacy of America. Uh, this kind of, kind of almost permanent racism uh, that they, that we have in the devaluing of blackness and anything that comes from blackness uh, that even that is internalized in, in ourselves a lot. And so that's why it's hard to get black people to value black things like businesses, uh, products, T-shirts, anything that, you know, we consider it subpar just because of the stereotypes that we have internalized in ourselves. And so part of it is uh, learning and part of it also is also understanding the mind state of the person and not necessarily always seeking to shame them. Do you, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, Where, definitely. Well, because part of it is it's not their fault that they've been raised in this culture and that they don't have the tools to understand black art. And so how welcoming can we be? How how um, how open can we be into inviting them in into do these different spaces and allowing them the opportunity to grow? 
because just because they don't value it now, just because the lady doesn't like that bag, likes her $2,000 bag now more than the painting, don't mean she's always going to like the right. bag over the painting. She just right. needs time. She just needs to be prompted. She just needs to be informed. And kind of we right. are the people that, you know, as much as hard as it is for us to to wrap our minds around it, we have to constantly be in this mode of of showing people the value of the thing. Just as yeah, a, and just I think as that's, a life I mean, that's an important that's an important factor because it goes to education. Because for me, my family, I was raised around the National Black Arts Festival. I was raised going into museums. I was raised around art. My mother was a dancer. I was raised. My daddy was a journalist. I was raised in a creative sphere that kind of, I guess, gave me the knowledge and the the appreciation of art at a young age. Not everybody has that privilege or has that education. Which you speak to, Kevin, in terms of what you're taught. Um, and what I'm finding, even with the college students that I'm working with today, their parents, we have to sometimes convince them what being an art history major is. We have to convince them what being curatorial studies major minor is and, and why it's important to have that education, um, maybe paired with international business studies, maybe paired with women's studies, pair it with economics, pair it with business, business management. How do these things pair together in, as a career tra- trajectory? Because Black families want to know how is my child going to provide for himself? <laughs> how is he going to do this with an art degree? And I have to, t- we have to literally convince them and show them the lineage of arts administrators and curators and artists that have come out of one, the AUC itself, which is a very long list, um, aside from the arts professionals that are existing in the world today. Um, no, we I, know that. Totally. Yeah. It's, so it's, and it's, so that actually helps having that history. It helps knowing, you know, I feel like you need to write a book about the Atlanta arts history because I feel like people need to know that <laughs> um, because it's at the end of the day, showing that legacy is important. And one thing I know is Atlanta as a city civil rights hub, a city, the Mecca, I hear another, I guess this is devil's advocate, but some of the conversations that I've had around people collecting black art is that they don't want to see themselves in the art. They don't want to see pain in the art. Hmm. They don't want to see the history in the art. I've had people say, I don't want to see no slave in, a, in, a, in art. I don't want to see struggle. I don't want to see pain. I don't want to see sadness every time I look at the wall. And I'm like, don't you feel that sometimes when you go out and somebody follows you around a, a, the Walmart? Don't you feel that? Like sometimes the, I was like, this same artist, that artist is just somebody that's personifying it on paper, on canvas. Well, what's interesting about what you're saying is when we go through art history, when I was in, when I was in college, we saw all those things. Mm-hmm. from every culture around the world. So it's not unique to us. However, right. there are moments in our history that are painful. There are moments in our histories that, that transcend pain. There are moments in our history where we're not thinking about pain at all. Artists have shown all those things. So I think when certain members of our our, our African-American community get obsessed with wanting to deny all the history, <laughs> it becomes a problematic thing. What we're really looking at is the core of the matter, curriculum. And we're talking about from the time you go to school in kindergarten, K through 12, on through college. Our history for most of this country's history was left out of the curriculum Mm -hmm. to the point where artists have spent a lot of time trying to create an artistic curriculum. Well, they they educate themselves. Most artists educate themselves. Exactly. So if we ever have the confidence to truly create a curriculum that is equitable and diverse and shows you all those things, we won't have half the problems we're having now around issues of valuation. 
because it starts, like you said, with education. But that education doesn't just start with somebody who loves art or hates art or is indifferent to art. It has to be part of the dialogue from the time you are entering school as a child to the time you're deciding you no longer want to be a part of that traditional schooling to the time you start schooling yourself after school. And all of those things are important to us. Like you said, I think it's very interesting because I like say when it comes to art, what I loved about being at the Hammers House in the years I was there, I was also a tour guide. So I had to tour men, women and children through the art collection. And sometimes kids would kids would come in from the schools and they didn't want to be in an art museum because it was boring. But I had to find a way to make it exciting by, number one, making sure they saw themselves in the art, saw their voices in the art. And one of the main things I remember saying when I started giving tours at the Hammonds House was, guess what, folks? You do not have to like anything you see in this show. And you have the right to tell me you hate his guts. <laughs> I only ask that you explain to me why. And you wouldn't believe how transformational that was because teachers would bring kids to art museums and tell them to shut up and listen. That is the <laughs> worst thing you can do when you bring a child to a museum. Right. You have some expert boringly telling these kids what they're looking at, and they just have to shut up and listen. I never did that when I was at the Hammers House, and I created this almost curriculum of how to give a tour, because you give a tour by having kids debate the art, debate the person talking to them about the art, and debate each other about the art. And you find equivalencies in their lives that they can relate to. So when people ask me, what's the difference between, one artist I'll never, one kid say, what's the difference between that artist who you think is great and this artist who you don't think is great. And how can I see the difference? I said, who's your favorite rapper? And this kid looked at me, he said, so-and-so. I said, okay, is so-and-so. And I'm, I, I'm, I remember exactly who he told me. I said, all right, if you had to pick your best rapper and you had to pick, and this was way back, Eric uh, uh, Rakim, and I think Nelly had just came out. <laughs> and as I ain't mad at Nelly. He, he does what he does. I said, who's the best rapper? He said, man, it's not even a contest. Rakim is a legend. He can blah, 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 blah. I said, yeah, but that person over there likes Nelly better. But they don't know what they're talking about. Well, debate with them why you think that art is better. And then when the debate was over, I said, okay, now transfer that debate to the, this visual art you're looking at. Who has the best technique? Who has the best composition? Who has the best rhythm? Who has the best? Mm -hmm. So we created a language from music that translated over to visual arts. And by the time the tour was over, kids were debating every work of art in the museum. <laughs> and, and they were using music as an equivalent to the visual arts. But we had found a language, a common language right. that brought them into the conversation. And that's what we have to do with our education. That's what we have to do with the public. That's what we have to do with our schools. Find a common language that brings people. So the number one. There are people who may have never have had an art class in their life, but there's a certain master art that will move them. And they can't always have the words to tell them why they are moved, but they know it moves them. And their words are just as important as the words of the experts. Just explain. Tell me why you like this piece. Tell me why you hate this piece. Just having that conversation where you demystify art as this kind of thing that's beyond the public to understand is also important for us to do. 
Yeah, that's what's up, man. And, and, you know, this has been a great conversation. I know we had an hour. I definitely want to bring you back on so we can talk about your work in the uh, all the ideas Anytime. about Afrofuturism and stuff. Uh, that's definitely. Oh yeah, that's another whole conversation. Oh yeah, man. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other hour. <laughs> we got a mission though. We yeah. got to educate the babies. That's the, yeah. that's the moral of the story. Educate the babies. And they got to educate us. For yeah, sure. For this, sure. This, this is going to be a group effort. It's going to be fun. Yeah. So yeah, anytime. Yeah. I would love to come back. So right now, Tom, let people know how they can get in contact with the with the OCA and uh, how to submit proposals and all that good stuff. Like I say, the Office of Cultural Affairs has, uh, we have a website presence. Uh, you can look up the uh, City of Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. It has links to all the uh, city municipal galleries, the art centers, and the uh, uh, opportunities that the city is offering uh, the constituency and the creatives here in Atlanta. So I say start there first. Uh, anyone who's interested in submitting proposals to the gallery, uh, can submit them directly mm-hmm. to me at ksip at atlantaga.gov. That's K-S-I-P-P at atlantaga.gov. I will say that, unfortunately, in the time of COVID, we are on hold while we're trying to work out how we can uh, safely bring people back into um, the gallery settings. And so we're constantly working on that right now. And, and I, you know, I can also be reached out through my city phone, uh, 404-295-6403. I don't mind giving that out. Call me. Let's have a conversation. Um, but I love what I love what I do as an artist, as a, as an administrator, as a, a, a historian, you know, as a creative being. I just, I think Atlanta has the greatest potential in the world. We have an international community second to none. We have artists second to none. We just have to, you know, make sure we continue to support arts and build new institutions that can show art. That's so important as well. I don't think we have enough spaces to show art in Atlanta. We do not. Oh, that's true. I just had that conversation yesterday. I agree. And I so, agree. And so that that needs to happen as well. And we just need to be in dialogue with each other. And if we're frustrated, don't hold the frustration. Talk it out with us. We're, we're here to have those conversations so we can grow together as a city. That's what's happening. We're looking forward to it. Appreciate you, Kevin. Bye, Kevin. Thank you. And that's it. Another episode of Studio Noise in the bag. Big shout out to Kevin Sepp at the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs doing what he do. We got to do a better job of connecting and make sure y'all get this information about all this good money that the government is handing out for us. We can work together. We can keep building so artists can sustain. So we're going to do our part. Kevin's doing his part. Show to appreciate it. Big shout out to Lauren for coming on this episode with me. Co-hosting, co-paladin. Show to appreciate it. It's been lonely. <laughs> I forgot what it's like to work with somebody. <laughs> But it's all right. We we holding it down. So after that great episode, I know you already waiting. Can't can't imagine like yeah, we talked about the visions of God. We talk about government money. What could we possibly be talking about next? Well, I'm bringing up all the way from Nebraska, Miss Cat Weiss onto the show. A young sister doing big things. Very thoughtful, intellectual. Yo, so we talk about uh, kind of her experience as a multicultural person and making art and how it reflects it's a good conversation i can't wait to introduce her work to you she's phenomenal uh so that's going to be a great episode for you to listen to next week in meantime in between time uh kevin work always make me 
think about Afrofuturism stuff. That's what that's his bag. That's what he talk about when he, he really gets into it. And you need to bring him back so he can talk about his work himself. But in honor of him, a little Afrofuturism for you. Go listen to Parliament, Funkadelic, Mothership Connection. Way back. It's going to take you back in time. It's going to make you feel good. Nothing but good vibes coming from the folks. Somebody say, is there funk after death? I say, it's seven up. <laughs> yeah. Sure, gonna funk you out, baby. <laughs> I love that music, man. Made me think of my pops dancing around. I appreciate it. Uh, so listen to that and, uh, you know, keep it going. So as always, as always, thank you so much for taking your time to listen to the podcast. We sure do appreciate it. Uh, wherever you're listening to right now, won't you hit that subscribe button? If you can rate and review, go ahead and rate and review. Make sure everybody know about the noise. Tell two friends, yo. And you can always reach out to us here at the podcast at Studio Noise Podcast on Instagram. If you want to send me an email, talk to me a little bit, suggest some guests. Why not? Suggest some guests for us. You can hit me up at Studio Noise Podcast at gmail.com. And you can find uh, my co-host Jiggy Jazz on Instagram at Negris.Supreme. Don't forget that dot. And I'll always follow your boy, J Barber Studio, on all your social medias. And to all my artists out there, go ahead and put up a sign right there on your front door. Tell the neighbors if they hear any noise. It's just me and my boys. We getting it, baby. <laughs> In the studio, making art. That's how we do it. It's studio noise, baby. We'll see y'all next week. Peace. <laughs>